Hey, what's up, everyone? Antonio Neves here. And before we get into episode 21 of The Best Thing with Sam Davidson, whoo, this is a, this is an exceptional episode. I can't wait for you to hear it. But before we dig into it, listen, I want to hear from you. I want to hear what you are thinking about The Best Thing podcast, how I can make it better, what you love about it, who you would like to see as a future guest and beyond. So do one of two things. A, slide in my DMs. I'm giving you permission to slide in my DMs on Instagram or Twitter, whatever you use. Um, my, uh, You can find me at the Antonio Neves on all the social media platforms and let me know what's up. Let me know your thoughts on the podcast. Also, if sliding into DMs isn't your thing, um, do people still say that, by the way? If that's not your thing, just send me a text message. Like You can actually text message me. You can hit me up at 310-564-7124. Once again, send me a text message. Let me know what you think about the show, who you want to see on it in the future, what I can do to improve it. Hit me at 310-564-7124, and yes, it will really be me who responds. Okay, without further ado, let's get into episode 21. Welcome to the Best Thing Podcast, where we talk to thought leaders, creatives, authors, and entrepreneurs about how sometimes the best thing to happen to you is the most unexpected. Welcome your host, Antonio Neves. Hey everyone, welcome to the Best Thing Podcast, where I talk to people about the best thing to ever happen to them that would rarely show up on a resume, bio, or come up in conversation. I'm your host, Antonio Neves. I'm a speaker, author, and coach, and each week I bring on a new guest who has a powerful story to tell that will motivate, inspire, and help you see life through a new lens. This week's guest is someone I met on the speaking circuit a few years back, and I've always been impressed with him, the stories he tells, and the interesting life he lives. Sam Davidson is an entrepreneur who has co-founded four companies, including Cool People Care and also Batch, where he serves as CEO. Batch is a gift and retail company whose unique offerings allow customers and companies to experience a taste of iconic cities. For over a decade, Sam has lived in the trenches of entrepreneurship and has a gift for taking ideas and turning them into reality. Sam Davidson, welcome to The Best Thing. Man, it is great to be here. Thanks for having me, man. You know, I didn't mention in the intro that you you know, you know, live in Nashville, pretty much were raised yeah. your whole life in Nashville. One thing that's been obvious to me throughout the years of knowing you and conversations, but looking at what you do socially, what you post, et cetera. Is how much that city means to you. Like you, you've leaned <laughs> into that city. You commit to that city. I got to say, in ways other people truly don't, whether they're entrepreneurs or not, it's obvious that you care and you give back. Could you talk about that? The love of Nashville. Yeah, I have a belief that everybody loves either where they live or where they're they're from. Uh, now that may not mean you love either or both of those things every day, a hundred percent. But we at least have a connection to those things. Uh, for me, it, it wasn't until I came back after college that I realized what any city, but especially this city, uh, how it could be part of my identity. And I think there's a big difference between a citizen and a resident. Residents just exist. They just live somewhere. They take up space. Yeah, maybe they get their mail. But a citizen votes. 
A citizen knows the shortcuts. A citizen knows who his or her neighbors are. Uh, a citizen is planting seeds that he or she may not see the full benefit of in their community. And the size of the town doesn't matter. It can be a small town. It can be a big city. Uh, but until you're willing to stay in a place and invest in a place, you really won't become a citizen. And so becoming a citizen of Nashville in that sense has been incredibly rewarding for me. Yeah, Nashville, obviously, like a few other cities I can think about uh, across the country, Austin, et cetera, is like just a hotbed of people showing up. Our, uh, I'm got my hunches. There are a lot of residents in Nashville. <laughs> there are a lot of residents, and other other cities, sure, they they have a lot of residents too. Uh, and I think that's that's the whole argument that's happening now in not just Nashville but other cities like that that are hot spots that are growing. Um, is this tension between the old and the new or between the citizen and the resident who says, hey, yeah, it used to be easy to get to this place or there didn't used to be these kind of parties at this place. And there's a lot of other changes we could get into. But yeah, Nashville definitely feels that that stress uh, on a daily basis. I'm, I'm, I'm going to try to force something right here. But, you know, when I think about your company, Batch, which I've been a customer of and I love what you're doing. Uh, in the intro, I said it allows you to experience a taste of iconic cities. So when you talk about being a citizen, how much does that play into what Batch does? And even though I may live in Los Angeles, when I get that taste of Nashville, New Orleans, Austin, you name it, you know, what kind of experience that creates for people? For most people, whenever you you, you mention a city, be it New York, Chicago, uh, Denver, Oklahoma City, if somebody's been there, spent significant time there, uh, there's usually memories, sights, sounds, but also tastes. And it could be the restaurant they went to, a food festival, or an iconic product that's made there that's forever associated with that. And so that's a lot of what we're doing is we're trying to find those items, starting with Nashville and then slowly branching out to some other nearby cities of what is made there. What are those products? And so, it's you know, yes, uh, Coca-Cola goes with Atlanta. Um, and we've even got more regional things about the kind of barbecue you think that might be from uh, North Carolina, for example. Um, but we're seeing that whether it's not just the big famous items that have been around a long time, but every city, uh, it seems, has somebody roasting coffee, somebody harvesting honey, somebody uh, making chocolate or popcorn or soap. Uh, and ultimately, though, that's the story of entrepreneurship. It's the story of a thing intertwined with a city produced by a baker, somebody who's just grinding it in a kitchen or workshop somebody yeah, I think what's great about Batch also is how much you empower local entrepreneurs, small business owners, artisans, et cetera, and you're exposing them to a, an audience nationally that they otherwise may not have been exposed to. You know, the times I've sent your products to, and by the way, this episode is brought to you by Batch. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's right. It was the, the steal. It was such a discount, man. Thank you again for allowing me. Uh, I'm, uh, but I, I'm joking, but when I've shared, you know, gifts with clients over the years, you can tell it's different than sending that generic basket or that generic item to them. So it really stands out. But one thing I want to just, as we transition a little bit, you know, we have a, a few mutual friends in common. I'll set this up by saying you're an entrepreneur. We mentioned in the intro, you have a gift for taking ideas and turning them into reality. One thing I think all of the people I know that you know have in common is that we all come to Sam Davidson for advice. You tend to give really good answers. You're a great listener. Is that something that you've experienced your whole life? Have you found that you've been that wise old person, even when you were only 12 years old, that people Man, came to you? Maybe I just like talking. And I've always looked for a stage. And if it's if it's not up in front of a room of a bunch of people, maybe it's just uh, over the phone or, or via text. Um, but no, I, I, I do appreciate that. I am always happy to sit for a conversation, to listen to what people are going through. And then if I can offer a story or words of wisdom, man, I, I'm, I'm more than happy to, because ultimately it comes down to the connection. 
Um, that's what my company is based on, but that's what essentially advice is based on. Because if advice without connection is usually unwelcome and rarely followed. And advice with connection is something that can truly make a difference in somebody's life. And if we're lucky enough, fortunate enough to get, get time to do that, the meaning, the, the impact is much deeper. And so for me, that's really what it's been about. And, and um, part of knowing when to give advice, I think, is equally knowing when not to give it. And so when to shut up and listen and just say, man, I got nothing for you. Listen, that's a gem right there. The difference between advice without connection and advice with connection makes me think about a friend of mine once said something I, I'll never forget. He said, never give a business card to someone who didn't ask for it. Oh, yeah. And, wise. Yeah. Very wise. So let, let's transition into this question about the best thing. We talk about okay. the best thing that's ever happened to people that that doesn't include those traditional markers of success, getting married, um, buying a home, graduating from college, all cool, best mm -hmm. things. But those things that wouldn't necessarily appear on a resume come up in conversation, of course, not show up on your LinkedIn profile. Sam, what's one of those things that have been the quote unquote best things that have had a profound effect on who you are today? When I was in college, my goal or my trajectory was going to, I was going to go to graduate school and I was thought I was going to be early on in college. I was going to become the next big famous Southern Baptist preacher. And throughout college, that trajectory, that path changed a little bit. But by my senior year, I still was very much in love with uh, religion, religious studies, religious arts, and wanted to keep studying that and either work in a university, maybe a church, maybe some sort of social sector job like a nonprofit. And so it was really uh, psyched and, and pointed toward graduate school. My senior year, I applied to a couple different places, one of which was Harvard Divinity School, got a chance to visit, go to a symposium, totally saw myself there. Had really good grades, thought I had a killer essay, but then came the rejection letter. Uh, still wanted to go to divinity school, seminaries, grad school in some capacity. So was accepted to Claremont School of Theology out in California. Went there halfway through the first semester, was like, man, what am I doing? I don't know what I want to do. I, probably not this. And ended up packing up and heading back to Nashville and then uh, starting my professional life. And, and I think if I had not, as, as disappointing as it was to not get into Harvard then, as much as I pictured myself there, I do wonder if I had gotten in, I probably would have stuck it out through that first semester, that malaise of like, man, what am I doing here? Um, would have saw it through, who knows, maybe would have gone to, to get a PhD, be a professor somewhere. But I think a completely different trajectory of where I am now. I'm curious, as I listen to you talk about leaving Claremont. Uh, making that, which is a really big adult decision to make, deciding to leave grad school. And I can only imagine yeah. potentially the resistance and, and friction that you receive maybe from some friends or colleagues, yeah. or maybe you got support. I don't know. But makes me think about the book, The Dip by uh, Seth Godin, sure. about knowing when to keep working on something and knowing when to quit. Could you just walk me through that decision? Because you were only in your only in your early 30s, excuse me, early 20s mm -hmm. at the time. And um, society says, finish what you start. How did you have the sure. courage? courage to, to walk away? Well, I was out there for a, a two-year program. And uh, again, I'm not sure. Okay, look, maybe I want to go into academic work, maybe for a nonprofit, maybe write, um, uh, maybe, maybe in a church. I just wasn't sure. And so halfway through that first semester, walked into the career services office and said, hey, can I get an internship in one of these areas? Because I want to find out. Like, If I think I want to be on a college campus and end up interning on one and I hate it, then great. I can check that off the list. Better focus my the rest of my academics while I'm here. And the career folks were like, yeah, that makes sense. However, internships are really only for second or third year students. Come back next year. And I remember leaving thinking, wait a second, I'll be halfway done. I could have wasted time that, that I could have 
spent or taken certain classes, gotten smarter in key areas and couldn't. And so I said, well, screw this. I'll pack it up. I'll go find some experience on my own. Finish out the semester. Yes, with a 4.0. And the dean was like, what are you doing? You're making good quiet. Why are you leaving here? And I was like, I need to go figure out what it is I want to do. And then I can come back and get the bona fides and the education that I need. Um, so yeah, for me, um, I did have, I will say, the familiarity of going back to a town that my parents still live in. I didn't move in with them, um, but where I still had a network and I could still figure something out. I walked into a very unglamorous job as an event technician for Marriott Hotels, setting up microphones for conferences. So I, I was definitely a dip or a, a trade in terms of being in this great, uh, prestigious academic thoughtful environment to waking up at 4.30 in the morning to drive to a hotel to connect microphones. That was the trick. Wow. So this is a twofold question, but I want to, now you can give with perspective, you can answer this, not just as that person who decided to say, you know what, grad school wasn't for me, but also now as an entrepreneur who has, you know, mm -hmm. made investments in yeah. uh, whether it be infrastructure, whether it be software, facilities, et cetera. How does Sam Davidson view sunk costs because a lot of people will invest money in something and they feel like they have to but i spent the money but i, I gotta take that trip that i, I got you know th they feel like because they invested the money the time or resources they have to do it how do you view sunk costs uh you know by its definition obviously a sunk cost is not something you're immediately going to recoup and so it's the the build out of your store and if the store doesn't do well it doesn't matter it's a sunk cost you you pay for it um and so that that can obviously change and vary by industry. For me, I sort of differentiate between a sunk cost and a lost cost. Um, to me, uh, a, a sunk cost is okay if you got something for it. Now, that something may be a really valuable lesson, uh, whereas a lost cost was something that you didn't learn your lesson from. You definitely didn't get any benefit from. The money's gone. Maybe it also burned a bridge, lost a customer. It was just a disaster. And if you're going to minimize or absolutely avoid lost costs, then you'll, you'll do okay. Um, because sunk costs, uh, education is an example of that. You, you paid for a degree, uh, you spent two, four, however many years getting it, just because you don't immediately go into the profession that you're supposed to, let's say you go to law school, just because you don't hop uh, into being an attorney, or maybe you take time off, or maybe you are an attorney for a couple of years and you go do something else. It doesn't mean that that money spent on that legal education is ever completely lost or wasted because whether you're an entrepreneur or whatever else you do, there's probably something you've learned in that class or that experience that you can still benefit from. Yeah. I love you just kind of differentiating between sunk costs and, and lost costs. And I've also, I've always found it frankly annoying when I've applied for jobs in my youth and, but I didn't have the the major or the direct mm -hmm. experience. I'm like, but that's the added advantage I'm bringing <laughs> to this. I'm going to see it from a different lens than other folks. Uh, so you went to that glamorous job at Marriott as an event technician, uh, something you always dreamed about as a young child <laughs> growing up, right. set, yeah. setting up microphones. <laughs> but without you don't have to give the, the the direct story. But at what point did hmm? I got some creative ideas going on in my brain, and I think I want to try this. Maybe you didn't even call it entrepreneurship, but you, I want to try something out. So first of all, I got the job because the part time job I had in college, kind of the one marketable skill that somebody would pay for is that that's the same thing I did in college was I was a part-time working for the university setting up sound and video equipment. So I had, I had the line on my resume, the one line on my resume that could actually get me employed. And luckily the, the hotel needed somebody for that job. I remember 
when I went back to Nashville, still having a heart for, again, maybe university work, maybe nonprofit work, thinking, how, how can I get that experience, but not having those resume lines? And so here's a job. I need to pay rent. And so I remember sitting in my, in my, in my interview with the director of operations, who would be my boss, and thinking in my head, like, this is something that I'll just pay the bills. Eventually, I'll, I'll just start applying to nonprofit jobs. Eventually, I may get out of here probably pretty quick, but fine. And so he asked me, he says, look, we, we don't do contracts here. We're not asking for a long-term commitment, but uh, we, we have just had this position come open sooner than we thought. So I'm just curious, could, do you see yourself here for at least two years, maybe? I mean, we're, we're hopefully got somebody we don't need to rehire this soon. And in my head, I'm thinking, no, 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 no. Two years. Oh my God. No, absolutely not. But of course, in the interview, I say, oh, absolutely. Yes. I've been dreaming about this since I was a kid, hooking up microphones. But how early can I get here? It ended up, yes, as soon as I'm there and get my bearings, I do start working on that resume, trying to apply to nonprofit jobs, which I finally got two years later wow. after I've been working that hotel job. And so it was during that period that this, again, is an example of retrospect, which of course, all our resumes are just perfect in retrospect, but uh, li living them is a much different experience. Um, but what I learned there working for the largest hotel company in the world, a global brand that had been very successful since its founding, uh, I got a crash course in business that I never had. I took one business class in undergrad, macroeconomics, got a C minus. Uh, but working there, I learned what it was like to manage a brand, how to run a PL, how to hire people, how to fire people, how to run meetings, how to sell, how to do customer service, uh, the whole gamut that I never got in an academic sense. And so I, I got those skills. Still went to work for a nonprofit and it was still about a year or two before I started my first business. But again, it was sort of, what are you doing while you're waiting? While you're waiting for that best thing, so to speak, are you learning? Are you connecting? Are you, you getting better in some way? Makes me think about when I'm talking to people who know they want to leave a current job. I, I always like to remind them, okay, find what you want to take yep. before you leave. What experiences, what training, what relationships, et cetera. And like you said, some people just they take nothing with them or they don't get those skills. When you told that story about being asked about, will you, will you be here for two years? And you're like, yes. <laughs> it, made, it made me think about years ago, I opened up the first H&M in the United States. I was on the there team that opened, in Manhattan, 51st Street and uh, Fifth Avenue. And during the job interview process, Sam, uh, they said, do you want to be full-time or part-time? And I had dreams of working in the television industry. I said, you know, yeah. I'm going to be a part-time. I can give you 20 hours. And then they said, okay, well, just so you're aware, our, our part-time workers have to go train in Sweden for, for one week at our headquarters in Stockholm. <laughs> and our, and our full-time workers have to go train for a month. And I said, you know what? I've thought about it. Uh, <laughs> I want to I be a full-time. I do too. Yeah. I want to be a full-time employee. This is going to be a bit of a transition, but obviously you earned a lot of skills at, at Marriott. And if there are any, any folks listening at Marriott right now, Starwood, SPG, Bon, bon Boy, <laughs> whatever it's called, holler at me. I, I'm, a, I'm a dedicated, loyal person. You can sponsor us or give me some points. As you're learning all those skill sets, which would come to be an asset for you as an entrepreneur, one thing that also stands out to me about you, Sam, is how much of a great storyteller you are. I'm curious, where did you learn how to tell stories? And of course, I know that helps you as an entrepreneur, helps you in business, et cetera. Can you talk about where storytelling came into your life? Yeah, thank you. By the way, story is something that, that is part of my identity, something I love deeply. I learned how to tell stories in the church. That's where Beyonce learned to sing. It's where I learned to speak. And uh, she and I get together a couple times a year to, <laughs> to hash that out. I, I, I got the chance to speak when I was about uh, 16 year old for the first time. I got the chance to preach to my youth group. And when I did it, it was one of those things, one of those moments in my life I equated to like 
you know, you, you, you put on a jacket and it fits perfectly. Like the sleeve length is there, the hem length, it, even in the armpits is like just right. It buttons, it just, you, you feel it or you uh, winter coat right when it's getting cold and you slide that thing on and it feels like home. And that's what preaching or, or speaking felt like. Um, in 2006, when I started my first company, entrepreneurship felt the exact same way. Something I had never studied or tried before, but when I did, I realized, oh, this is the thing for me. And so that's where I learned how to, how to tell stories and getting a chance to craft that throughout the rest of my high school and college career was a, a great opportunity to do that. And then story is something that factors into my work every day. Part of the, the goods we sell at Batch, we just say every product has a story because every maker has a story and it's grandma's recipe or it's uh, how their, their dad taught them to do something growing up or it's a couple of buddies who got together and started making this certain brand. Uh, and there's a story there that, that people want to buy. And when did you notice that, did you, okay, so you said it fit like a glove. Now, some people, things do fit like a glove, uh, but they're really bad at it. Like, they're like, hey, this one's great, <laughs> but, I'm a, but I'm a bad singer. But like, Jimmy, yeah. I don't know if you should pursue a career on Broadway. Uh, at what point, though, did you realize you had a, a knack or a gift for this, the storytelling specifically, where people started to lean in? When people paid me to do it, I, I think that's that's one of the key differences and something I talk about when I speak mostly to students, but really anybody is it's it's great to have a passion for something. Absolutely. The world needs more passionate people. But turning your passion into your profession requires a lot more steps in that. If you um, just have a passion to sing and you love to sing, that is awesome, man. I hope you sing loudly in the shower, in your car, at karaoke go nuts. But it doesn't mean you need to take out a second mortgage to pay the vocal coach in the recording studio to drop an album. Um, what you need is to pair your passion with is a talent. And so a passion that's all internal, that's something you feel, it, it's your heartbeat. But a talent is something somebody else can verify. And that's why we love these contest reality shows. If somebody has a passion for singing, they go on thinking they have a talent for it and they don't. And we all laugh at them and it's great TV. But really when you've got a talent for something, be it singing or numbers or organization or motivation, then someone else can say, yes, that is true. And usually the way that they do that is by writing you a check to do that thing. And so that can be, it's not the only, but it can be a pretty big validation uh, for someone to say, hey, somebody else believes this about me too. And and for me, that was a huge step all the way back then. But it's true with every company I've started, when somebody wants to pay you to do the thing you say you're doing, uh, besides your mom, my mom's always been my first customer in all, all of my businesses. So shout out to mom. But when somebody else uh, believes in it, gets it and wants to pay you for it, then you're actually on your way to developing a talent for it. Yeah, I've never heard it put that way, that talent is something uh, that someone else can can verify. And that's absolutely mm -hmm. uh, true. Um, I want to talk briefly. Again, we're going to a few different directions on this, but I'm just really feel spoiled. I'm lucky yeah. to have you on here to get your perspective on it. Okay. So I've been speaking for, what, 10 years now? I know you've been in the speaking game for a long time. I've had the privilege of seeing you speak and you're great at what you do when you're on that stage. One thing that I got to say unique about you compared to other speakers, I think a lot of speakers, uh, for me, me included, for the beginning of my career, I, I frankly was looking for validation. And I just wanted to hear my voice out loud. I'm not sure I, was, I really cared about the impact that I had early on. <laughs> of course, that, uh, that shifted, and I'm thankful that that shifted. Um, one thing I've noticed about you in the time that I've known you, Sam, was even though you're on the stage, you've always seemed to have a let's be honest, I think if you want to get on a stage, there's some ego has to exist for all of us, but simultaneously, <laughs> There's a humility that you have equally that I think makes you accessible 
in a way that others uh, aren't. And I think maybe that's why me and the other friends I mentioned earlier come to you uh, for advice or just conversations and because we have that connection with you. Um, I don't even know if I have a question directly for this, but <laughs> how how humility shows up for you in the work that you do, whether you're on a stage or, or dealing with your team? Again, thank you. It, it um, is something that was not automatic and is still a, a discipline or a challenge. Um, there, there was a time when humility would have been probably the last thing that I would have been thinking about, even if somebody might have said it. Um, there was a time I remember early in my speaking career where it was, it was sort of a game I played was, okay, how many people are going to come up to me after this at the reception or the meet and greet and shake my hand to me I did a good job? And I would count in my head. And if I didn't hit a certain number, then I was like, man, I could have done better. Uh, and that was how I validated that. You know, speaking um, in and of itself can be very dangerous because for an hour, 45 minutes, 90 minutes, however long your keynote is, for that hour, you are perfect. You are perfect. You are on stage by yourself. Nobody usually, you might have some hecklers, but nobody's giving you feedback. It is you and everybody is looking at you. And you are saying a speech you worked on that you believe in, that you think is perfect. So you are perfect for that hour. Nobody can bother you. Nobody can touch you. You are awesome. Uh, but it is not real life. And the minute you walk off that stage and how you feel and, and your other responsibilities, your other identities, that to me is really the substance of who that speaker is and, and really what they're bringing to the table. You and I no doubt have people, speakers that we know that that we admire. Maybe they've got some notoriety, but but a lot of them aren't world famous, but we admire them for the kind of people they are. And so we're more excited to listen to them on stage. We know others who may be polished or have some really great tweetable bullet points, but uh, we've met them or we, we see them in other walks and we have less of a respected admiration and therefore it doesn't translate to on stage. Uh, and so that was something I think is, is really key to any speaker is, is to know who they are off that stage before they ever step on it. Next time you and I speak at the same event or, or conference, I'm going to wait in the back and count the number of people for you that come up <laughs> to you <laughs> to shake your hand and say Perfect. what's up. As you're talking, I was nodding my head because I, I know exactly what you're you're talking about what I love about the speaking game. And this is just quick digression is how many amazing speakers there are out there, Sam, as you know, that will never be household names that are just still brilliant mm -hmm. at sure. what they do that adds so much value that are earning good incomes, et cetera. Yet maybe they don't, they could care less about being a household name and to create an mm -hmm. email or sales funnel or course for you to buy and what important work that it is, especially if your heart's in the right place. But, but here's another differentiation, I think, and, and what uh, kind of crystallized it for me. And, and again, speakers that, that we like. For a time, there was, there was uh, when I spoke, that was so ego-driven, was good. I'm going to get on stage. I'm going to tell these people what I know. Mm. But now when I approach speaking and I ask to speak somewhere, I say, great. I get to get on stage and tell people what I'm learning. Mm. And I usually start most speeches with saying, look, these are things that I think are true. They're things that I'm trying to figure out, too, as a day-in, day-out CEO of a team of people. Um, so here's some lessons I've learned that I'm still trying to get good at. And again, there's a differentiation between speakers who say, Hey, this is what I know. And the speakers say, Hey, this is what I'm learning. And it's those who are saying, I'm a student too with you. Those are the ones you actually want to sit with and listen to. I like that. What, I, what I'm learning. And it takes me back a little bit to at the top, that goal you had of going to the Harvard, to their <laughs> divinity school. And that didn't happen. And I think what's interesting about life, Sam, is how you know, we have these layers of education from grade school to middle school to high school, college if you choose so, grad school if you choose so. And then all of a sudden it abruptly, it stops. Yeah. Um, if you're fortunate enough, you work for an organization or company that takes leadership and development serious or you are a lifelong mm -hmm. learner and you, you do that on your own. 
Uh, I guess this will be our last question of the day. Talk to me about what I'm learning and, and how do you, one thing I know you are as a forever student, the people can't see this, but behind you is, is a bookshelf full of books. I'm just curious about your approach to learning as a CEO. You always read those articles about the average CEO finishes 60, whatever books a year or something, but how you view learning and continue to grow. There's a lot of people who can teach you, but no one can learn for you. And so learning is a choice, number one, no matter if you're a kindergartner or uh, an executive, learn, you have to choose to learn. Uh, just because someone gives you information via speech or video or in a book doesn't mean it's something you're actually going to learn. Um, and so number two, that leads to the, the idea if learning is a choice, then number two, uh, learning is entirely up to you. And especially at a, at, when you get out of formal schooling, learning is a choice. And so if you decide to uh, the learning's up to you and what you want to choose to learn. Great. Take a class online, go to a, a pottery studio, read a bunch of books, um, learn from other people and, and conversation. Um, but I think that is something that the leaders I admire are those who are always learning. And yes, books can be a great way to do that. I wish I read more. Um, I, I wish I could pour through a book a week or even more than that, because there is a lot of knowledge in the world that can get out there. But uh, you can also learn from people on your team. We are right now in the middle of a warehouse reorganization transition throughout all the coronavirus stuff. And I've got a great idea for how it should be done. But lo and behold, we've got somebody on our team who ran her own warehouse, was very successful for seven years. And it took a lot. But I said, you know what? You're going to do this better than I ever could. So here are the keys. Go, go do it. Tell me what you need. Uh, and for me, that was hard because I wanted to have so much control and ownership of it. But if I did, it would have been worse. It would have been worse for the company and ultimately worse for everybody else. And so for me, that was the thing I'm learning was that here's somebody who can teach me something better. And it took me longer than I wanted it to. So maybe next time I'll be quicker with that to turn over those reins and, and let her teach me so I can then choose to learn from her. Yo, two gems. No one can learn for you. And learning is entirely up to you. I'm going to get that on a T-shirt, man, and start selling them. Uh, no, I, I dig and appreciate that. And you just that note with, uh, you know, having your, you know, your, your colleague, your employee take that on. That takes humility as well and getting the willingness mm -hmm. to get out of our, our own way. Sam, this has been uh, a lot of fun for me. I don't get to have conversations like this all, all the time. Uh, so I appreciate you taking the time for people who want to learn more about you. And I'll say Sam has an amazing email list where he, he has a great gift of writing succinct, powerful uh, emails that are memorable and actionable as well. So, but if Sam, for folks who want to connect, learn more about you and Batch, where should they go? Man, you can uh, follow me at samdavidson.net or on the socials at Sam Davidson. And then for Batch, we're at batchusa.com um, and, and uh, look for us there for all our social profiles as well. Yeah. And for everyone listening, check out Sam. And also Sam and I are those rare people that you know, we have such awesome names that somebody else got our dot com. Uh, Sam's, a dot, <laughs> <laughs> Sam's a dot net. And I tried to get Antonio Neves dot com and it's it's just not there. I, one day they're going to slip and we're going to get those dot coms when they don't renew. So yeah, just whoever has Antonio Neves dot com and Sam Davidson dot com. Just know we got it automated with the bot to take our URL back. <laughs> <laughs> Sam, thanks for joining me, man. You bet, man. This was fun. Thanks for listening to The Best Thing Podcast with Antonio Neves. Join us next week for more stories that'll help you see the world through a new lens. For more resources, go to theantonioneves.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, we ask that you share with a friend and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode.